It's good to uh, it's good to hear the Christmas story. I was thinking um, as we're going through Revelation, uh, you might think you might be tempted to think just a little introduction here. You might be tempted to think that what is what does Revelation have to do with the Christmas story, right? Like here we are in Christmas and we're talking about you know seals, judgments, and sun, you know all these different trumpet judgments, and next week bold. What has that got to do with Christmas? Um, I just want to encourage you, uh, go read the Christmas story and read it, read it again and again and see the kind of place and the kind of way in which the Messiah came into this world. If you read, I was reading, I'm reading through the Gospels this Christmas and I was reading through Matthew and I was just reading afresh the Christmas story and what is, we, we, have, we have murder and death of little children happening because of the coming of the Messiah. We have, we have utter chaos. He has to flee and be protected from being killed. Like all, all of this, this dark place in which the Messiah came uh, is represented. Now ultimately, the whole thing uh, in the book of Revelation over and over again, and certainly back in chapter 12, uh, you could see the Christmas story just unpack and unfold in Revelation 12. That it wasn't some simple, we, we think of this nice sweet story and the sweetness of it is that in the midst of chaos and darkness, God sends his son and to pronounce what is truly peace, what is truly joy, that peace on earth, goodwill toward men, uh, is announced at the coming of Christ and is only available through Christ. And so, uh, Revelation has quite a bit to do, actually, with the Christmas story. So in light of some of these things that we're talking about over the next week, or last few weeks and this week, uh, go read the Christmas story in light of those things and you will see some pretty amazing things. Um, Revelation chapter 14 is where we're at today. Uh, Revelation 14, and we're going to look at the first part of 15. Uh, but before I read it, um, I just want to give, give you a little bit of situation or setting here. Um, as, as Pastor Nick has been building up and building up and painting this picture, but let me just remind you, like, in 14, chapter 14 of Revelation, what we see is sort of this pause and this moment. And, and just, just remember that Revelation is written in this way in which it just keeps telling the same story from different angles and giving us different perspectives and highlighting different pieces of the story of the whole redemption of, of mankind uh, throughout history. And so we see this unpack in different ways. We see God uh, giving John this vision in order to help his people be comforted and encouraged that we would not be those, for instance, that would be surprised at the things that are happening in our world. We're not supposed to be surprised because God has told us in advance, hey, here's what's happened, here's what's happening, and here's what's going to happen. So don't be surprised, right? I think of, uh, in particular, as we think about what, what Pastor Nick has been talking about in terms of persecution and trials and difficulties that come upon the church, P Peter says, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. We're not supposed to be surprised by that because God, in his mercy, has given us a picture in advance so that we might be encouraged, so that we might be firm, so that we might endure and have persecution and, or perseverance because of persecution, uh, and uh, uh, so Revelation 14 is sandwiched in between the last few weeks, this, this picture that Pastor Nick has talked about, that, that there, is, there is actually an all-out war being waged upon God's people. This is not new. This has been going on since the beginning of time. 
that there is an enemy. We see in chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12 and throughout chapter 12, there's a dragon. And, and again, these are symbolic pictures of real things, right? And there's this dragon who is Satan, and he is in all-out war mode on God to usurp God's power, his authority, his kingdom. He is, he is in waged, waging war on God's people, on the, the, the woman it talks about in Revelation 12, and on her offspring, which is the Messiah. And at every turn, he fails, and he fails miserably because the sovereign creator and king of the universe, will not, his purposes will not be thwarted. But it's chaos. He seeks to stomp out the Messiah. He can't get that done. And you saw last week, in the, at the end of the text last week, the, or the week before, that the war now is being waged on the church. This is what the enemy, the dragon, is doing. And he does it very creatively. He uses states and nations and laws and people. He uses false prophets. He uses all, every means that he can in order to attack in hopes of stomping out the God's people. And so in light of that reality that there is a war being waged, the beast, in essence, is after us. John sees this vision from God to encourage them to sort of pause and just to remind God's people. And you'll, you notice in this te- in Revelation, there's many of these pauses because it's, it's, it's again trying to pause and remind us of who we are to remind us of our standing before God, of of the fact that we can endure and persevere because our God is with us. And so this is what Revelation uh, chapter 14 in the first part of 15 is intended to do. It's intended to encourage his church, but maybe in a way that you haven't thought about. Not just to to show us who we are in Christ, but it's also going to show us a warning a warning both to the church, to those who believe, but also a warning to the unbeliever as well. A very serious warning. One in which we, we rarely in our culture can stomach. We can't. I was thinking about it this way before we read this text. There was a day for me when I heard the gospel. And on that day, that time that I heard the gospel, the Spirit of God opened my eyes to actually believe it, to see Christ for who he really was. And I really was genuinely blown away on that day at how awesome God was, and yet how merciful and how loving and how gracious God was. It blew me away. But at the same time, I was in awe of his goodness and his bigness and his glory and his love towards me. I was also made very much aware of how serious my sin and my offense. I had lived 18 years of my life in absolute rebellion against the very God who gives me breath. I had used the breath that he had given me to breathe and to live and to have life in order to curse him, in order to tear people down, in order to hurt people. The very breath that he gave me, I used it to thumb my nose at him and to spit in his eye. I'd use the very hands and the feet and the mind that God created for me to bring him glory, and I had used it to do the very opposite. And I don't know how this was for you, but the realization in that moment for me was the realization that that my life had been lived against this holy God, and it was terrifying. And yet at the same time, 
in that moment of realizing how awful my sin was, I was blown away again by the surpassing value of Christ. How good it is. This gospel of good news is really good in light of the reality of God's holiness and the reality that one day, one day, God is going to balance the scales of justice again. Everything is going to be made perfectly right. And in fact, you long for that, and I long for it. If you don't believe in God at all here this morning, you have a deep longing inside your heart for things to be made right. You don't like injustice. It makes you sick to your stomach. You are angry about it, and you want it to be made right. And the Bible proclaims a God who will one day see to it that not one single evil Not one single impure motive or thought or action, not one of those things will go unnoticed. He will judge and punish every single solitary tiny motive and he will do it so completely and so thoroughly that all the scales of justice will be perfectly in balance. And for the believers in this room, that is incredible good news. And we'll find out why. But if you're an unbeliever here this morning and you're wondering about, I don't know about this God thing, I'm not sure. Man, can I just tell you today, there's a reason why Paul says today is the day of salvation. Do not delay. Do not put it off. Today, consider. Consider the seriousness of what awaits you. Consider the absolute holy perfection of God and that he will one day judge every person and he will either judge you in Christ and your sins will be completely forgiven and you will be judged to be righteous and holy and be welcomed in or he will punish you according to what you have earned and deserved and, and it will not be good. And that's the picture that we see here this morning in Revelation. So, great, right? You guys seem really cheery about this. Let's stand as we read God's word. Fourteen verse one. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him the hundred and forty four thousand who had had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth was, no lie was found, for they are blameless. And I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and every tribe and every language and every people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made the earth and the heavens and the sea and the the springs of water. Another angel, 
a second followed him, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all the nations drink the, drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. And so here is a call for endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and the faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud one like the Son of Man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour up to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he, t- and he too had a sharp sickle, And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swung his sickle across the earth, and he gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and he threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, And the blood flowed from the winepress as high as the horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels of seven plagues, which are the last, for for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear our Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray. God, let this text speak to us today. May it be encouragement and comfort for the believers in this place. And may it be a call to repentance and faith for the unbeliever. May you today transform our hearts. May our lives be rightly oriented around these truths and what they mean. That we would not waste our lives, but that we would be those who through the power of your spirit are able to joyfully and gladly serve you and worship you and proclaim you to the nations that they may be saved, that the end will come. And we pray this in your name. Amen.
You can be seated. In chapter 14, verse 1, John is, again, he's given a vision. So he's, God is allowing him to be able to see some things, to hear some things, to experience some things. And so first thing we see is that John sees, what he, what he sees is the, the people of God. It says, I looked and behold on Mount Zion, which is a way of describing, uh, was always a way in the Old Testament of describing Jerusalem. It says, on Mount Zion, in this firm place where God dwelt, stood the Lamb. So there's Jesus there, and he sees with the Lamb the 144,000 whose whose name, who had his name, the, the Lamb's name, and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And so the first thing he sees, and I want you to see all throughout this passage, this massive contrast. We see the contrast last week of the beast and his and the beast followers. And in fact, in John chapter, or, or Revelation 12, verse 10, we see the dragon, Satan, it says he's standing at the end of that chapter on the sands of the seashore. And here in 14.1, I think without mistake, we see the people of God where? We see them on firm footing. We see them with the Lamb, standing on the mount, um, in Mount Zion, firmly with God, Here's the people of God, and again, the 144,000 is a way of describing the completeness, the fullness of the people of God. And so here we see, in contrast to the beast, standing on rocky or sandy ground, uh, you, could, you could just Im- imagine uh, how shaky uh, gr- the ground is, sandy ground is, and yet here we see God's people with the Lamb who has redeemed them, and they are marked, they are marked for Him. And Pastor Nick talked a bit about those things last week. But then also, it's not only what he saw, but it's what he heard. It says, then I heard a voice. The word voice there, actually, and the word sound in the Greek, just a note there. I'm going to read it this way. The word voice and the word sound are the exact same word. Uh, The translators are just trying to make it read a little better, but it's the exact same word. It can be translated either voice or sound. In either way, and so you could, you could read it either way. I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder, and the sound I heard was like the sound of harpists playing the harps. Huh. I, I don't know how to actually describe that. I was thinking, here we have this loud thunderous sound, and then we also have the sound that sounds like the playing of harps. I don't know about you, but those don't seem compatible, do they? So sometimes when you read these things, you know, you're kind of like, I, I, don't, I don't know what that's about, right? I'm not sure. But, but, he, he, but here's what it ultimately refers to. He says, the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harp. They were singing. So if you, if you think of it in terms of what, they, what this sounded like, it sounded like harpists who were, I don't know how that even works, but they were singing this song. They were singing, it says, a new song. So he sees this vision of the people of God. He hears this loud sound, like the sound of harpists. And what is the sound about? He, what are the people of God doing up there and before the throne with the Lamb? It says that they were singing a new song before the Lamb and before the four living creatures and the elders. And this whole idea in Scripture about a new song 
they sang a new song. In fact, six or, or more times throughout the, the book of Psalms, we see this picture of a new song being sung, and typically it's in response to God doing something new. God God redeeming a people. When, when Moses, we're going to see at the end of this, when he sang the song, uh, a new song, it was a song that, that came after they were taken through the Red Sea and the enemies of God were destroyed and then they sang a new song, a response to God redeeming and, and usually in a response to God saving and redeeming people. And so here we see this picture, the, the people of God, the 144,000, they're there, they're singing this new song, and notice, no one can learn the song except for them. The, the song can only be understood or learned by the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They were the only ones who knew, and I, I thought about this, like when we think of just a literal song, you think, well, anybody can learn a song, Right? But, but you can learn a song and sing a song. But I don't know if this is a great way of describing this, but think about it this way. If some of you have a certain song that like has some really deep meaning, right? And I might sing the song with you and hear it in the, in the car playing, and you, I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's a cool song, whatever. But when you hear it, it, it causes you to weep is something that happens in you as a result of this same song. I, I, I wonder if it's a bit like that. Like the reality of this song that they are singing in response to the redemption of God is, is something that only the, the blood-bought, redeemed person who has the Spirit of God in them can fully understand, not just the words and the melody, but understand it deeply because it's a part of who we are. It comes out of our love and our affection for Christ and what he has done for us. And then it describes and gives the characteristics of these 144,000, the, the picture of the church of God. It says in verse 4, It is these who have not defiled themselves, defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Again, the picture here is a symbolic picture. You're not meant to go, oh, these are men who've never been with a woman. Uh, if you go and do a history of search in the Old Testament of, the, of Scripture, you will see that sexual immorality is a way throughout the Bible of describing purity and s describing a person's spiritual purity. It's a, there's a connection there. And so when it uses this imagery, it's describing, in fact, in the Old Testament, when the people of God forsook they, they, when they were forsaking God and turning away to other gods, what were they called? Adulterers. They were, they were in, in essence, turning away from their husband and turning to others. That's the picture that we get in the Old Testament. And so here we have this picture of these, these 144,000, the church, and the church is those who are pure. That's what he wants us to see. The church is, a, is the, one of the characteristics is their purity. I, I want to just say about that, I, I think one of the greatest things that's mocked in our culture is even just the idea of being pure. Don't you think? When I say that to you, that you and I as a believer in Christ, we are those who have been purified. We are pure. We kind of have this little reaction in our culture because it's, it's mocked so much. It's like, <laughs> whatever. 
we call people like that goody goodies, right? I don't know, that's what we called them when I was a kid anyway. I don't know. <laughs> but the children of God are truly pure because they have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and their sins have been washed. They're not pure because somehow they've done some good deeds and they're pretty good people. No, they're pure because Jesus Christ has died for them on the cross and shed his own blood for their sins and they have been washed clean and declared to be righteous in Christ. And so he describes the people of God as people who are pure. And in fact, your purity as a Christian is what marks you for God in this world, does it not? That is part of the mark You are a weird person if you live your life uprightly before God. Does that not set you apart? I remember as a young man in seminary uh, doing construction, and I would sit around with the the construction guys at lunch hour, and it got really ripe at lunch hour in a construction crew, right? And it was really rough. And these guys would say horrible things about their wife, and I mean just terrible things, unless she showed up for lunch, by the way. It was always funny to see these big burly guys and all of a sudden their wife showed up, oh, hi, honey, and they were all nice and stuff. But, but the reality was, I, I sought, I would say really good things about my wife. I would talk her up in front of these guys. I would talk about the good things that we were doing. I'd talk about how amazing she is when this happened. I would say good things. And for some reason, that would cause them, when they had marital problems, to come and say, Chris, can we talk? Like, right? It set me apart simply by loving my wife and actually building her up, right? Our purity, having, having a, a mind of Christ, it, it, it sets us apart. It's part of how we're marked. This is the picture of the people of God in Revelation 14. But he goes on. He says, and these are those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. One of the ways in which you and I are, are different is we follow Jesus, Right? Seems pretty basic, right? So there's purity. We we are those who follow Jesus. We do what he says. We go where he goes, right? We obey him. Isn't this what Jesus said in John? John, in in, in the Gospel of John, says that if you love me, Jesus said, you will do what I say. And so one of the marks of us as Christians is that we actually follow Jesus, we actually do what he say, says. We take these things serious. We are those who follow him wherever he goes, it says. That's, that's the characteristics of who you are as a Christian. This is who you are. Is that, let me ask you, is that who you are? Are you following Jesus? Are you obeying his commands? Do you, do you love him in that way? Do you know him in that way? But it goes on. It says it's these who have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God. The first fruits are those fruits that were brought in from the harvest, the first portion that was given to God and dedicated to God. John sees here in this vision that we, Christians, are those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And we've been brought to himself and we are a reward to him, dedicated to him as first fruits given to God. We belong to him. It's for him that we have been saved for his glory and for our joy. And so here are those who've been redeemed from mankind. And lastly, it says, in their mouth, no lie was found. Christians are to be truth tellers. I don't even think that this is even necessarily talking about whether or not you tell a lie every once in a while. It does refer, that would certainly 
fall into this, but I think it's even bigger than that. First John, for instance, would say in chapter one that if you claim to have fellowship with God and yet you walk in darkness, you lie and do not live by the truth. But if you have fellowship with him, then you walk in the light as he is in the light, right? I, th- I think that's the essence of what he's saying, that Christians, if you and I are truly Christian, to not lie is to be those who walk in the light, right? Those who claim to have fellowship with God and then actually do have fellowship with God. We walk in his light. We love his truth. We love to be close to him. And, but, but there's also a warning in that to each of us to say, if you claim to have fellowship with God and yet you are living your life in darkness, doing the deeds of darkness, that you don't obey Jesus at all. In fact, you find, his, you find the Christian way of life that Christ has displayed for us and redeemed us in order to live joyfully. If you find that to be repulsive and you would mock that internally, then, then he would say, then you lie. And you do not walk in the truth. And so Paul or John sees here a group of people who are pure, They follow Jesus because they are redeemed. Notice here too when he says that they are those who don't lie. There was no lie found in them. It says the reason why is because they're blameless. It's not that they don't lie because they're just great people. It's because they're blameless. And why are they blameless? Because they've been redeemed by the Lamb, right? It's not because of stuff in them. It's because of Him. He is the one who declares them righteous and has made them righteous by the power of his spirit through the gospel. And because of that, they are those who are pure. They are those who follow him. They are those who have, who have been redeemed and they are those who have no lie. They walk in truth in their lives. Is that, does that represent your life today? John, I think, is, is getting this vision from God in the midst of this pursuit that's happening, this war that's being waged against them, in order to encourage the church to say, see, this is who you are. Be who you are in Christ. Don't be led astray by, by the enemy. And we're going to find out why that's an important thing to think about here in the next few verses. Don't be, don't be deceived. Don't, don't, don't lose sight of who you are. Be who you are, confidently knowing that you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Don't lose sight of that, he's saying to them. He's encouraging, but he's also setting apart the contrast here between the worshipers of the beast, of this world system, versus the people of God. That's what sets us apart, these characteristics. This is who you are. And in fact, if you are that, then you are going to be made fun of and persecuted in this world you will be squeezed. You will find yourself in really precarious situations (laughs) in which you're either going to come off weird, right, or people are going to be called to Christ. I had one of those last week. I was in a little situation where some stuff was being talked about amongst some guys that I'm trying to share the gospel with, and it was vulgar, horrible, despicable things. And what do I do? <laughs> I was really faced, like, what do I do? Um, uh, do, I, do, I, do I join in? Do I laugh? Do I, what do I do? You know, but I, internally, I was repulsed by what they were saying. And so, you'll have to ask me later what I did. 
I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I walked away. I walked away um, from that. That's what I did. I don't even know if that was right, but that's what I did. I walked away. So that's who we are. That's how we stand out. That's how we are marked as different. But John, John sees more. There's more that he sees in this vision. He sees three angels that come in verses 6 through 11. There are three angels that come, and these three angels are pronouncing judgment. He sees the, the first angel that says in chapter 14, 14, verse 6, he says, Then I saw another angel. And he says another angel because if you remember in the book of Revelation, there have been many angels who've come and pronounced things, right? So this isn't the first one. So he says, I see another angel that comes. And he says, The angel was flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. Notice how he describes this good news. He describes this good news as an eternal good news. An eternal gospel. The word gospel means good news. And so this eternal gospel, which, which in essence, we could spend a whole message just talking about what that means, but in essence what that says is there are no local truths. There's not truths that are somehow, when it comes to the gospel, there's no truth that's true for that culture, but not for this one. There's no truth that is somehow true for you, but not for the person beside you. No, there is only one and it's an eternal truth that applies to every person who's ever lived in all time, in all places, throughout all of history. There is one gospel, and there's only one gospel, there's only one good news. Jesus said it very clearly when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life in John 14, 6. And no one comes to the Father except through me. There's, there's not like a smorgasbord of options that you can figure out. Jesus is saying, there's one good news. God's saying this to, to John to proclaim. There's one good news. It's an eternal good news. It's always good news to every person in every place. But actually here, he's talking about that in light of judgment. Why would John be saying that right here in light of the fact that judgment has come. He's announcing in advance that there's a day coming which this final judgment is going to happen and he's announcing the gospel in light of that. This to be proclaimed to all the earth. In this case, we would think that maybe he's announcing that so that people would repent. <laughs> but actually, in light of the context, what he's, what he's announcing it for is just to show that his judgments are absolutely just. That the God of the universe who deserves glory and honor and praise has been mocked and ridiculed and, and, and spit upon and he's in light of the fact that he has offered and provided salvation for all who would believe. Right? And so in light of that, it shows and it proves that God's judgments are right. That he is gracious and good and generous to all, and yet they have rejected it. And so the call here is one of repentance. Notice what he says. He says, he says fear God and give the angels declaring this. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything. That God is the only one who's actually worthy of our worship and our honor. He's made everything. He alone is to be feared. He alone is to be worshipped. And the reality is, he's not. The greatest offense of all the nations 
is that they do not give God his due. That he deserves praise. He's the one, as I described, who, ga- who gives us breath and life and everything, and yet we use everything in order to mock him and to make fun of him. And so he's proclaiming this here to show that in light of his mercy, when he comes to judge, it will be correct. People will get exactly what they deserve, exactly what their sins and their rebellion have earned them. And then he sees another angel, a second, it says, following, saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations to drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. We see it again there. This is, this is an incredible picture. The, the idea of Babylon here, when it talks about Babylon the Great, it's a, it's a symbolic representation of the world system around us. It's this, this world system. And, and what it's saying is, is in advance, in advance, it's saying that this world system that is completely against God, that is squeezing you and I in, it is fallen. It's done. It's already defeated. He's, he's saying it as if it's already happened, even though it hasn't fully happened yet. And as Christians, that ought to give us incredible encouragement. Do you live your life as if the thing, the very system around you that is squeezing you in and mocking you and ridiculing you for being pure and blameless before God, do you live your life knowing that that very system is what leads people into chaos and destruction and it's already been defeated. I think as Christians, we act at times as if the world system has won. They've won the arguments of our culture. They've won. We, we, we sometimes act as though we've been defeated. Well, there goes another issue down, you know, just everybody's believing it, going on, you know, like we see this massive shift in our culture and we go, we just, we're losing the argument, right? And yet John's telling us in advance, no, 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 you haven't lost it all. You have won. These arguments will not stand up in the light of the truth of the gospel that exposes all lies. And they ultimately will not hold up on the day of judgment when God appears, when he sets everything right. None of these things will go unnoticed by God. But just a note, you and I, you feel, let me just give a little realism to this. You feel the pressures of what he's talking about here. Where we are, we are, listen to what it says. It says that the world system, this Babylon the Great, this idea of this world system around us, is, is making the nations to drink of the passion of its sexual immorality. That actually is going on in our world right now. And it has been forever, and it will be until Christ comes. You and I, are constantly being squeezed and forced into believing and conforming to what the world believes or else. Are we not? In every, every station of life, every place that you go, it's either you believe what this world system believes or you're out. There's a whole nation I was reading about yesterday as I was preparing for this, a whole nation that two years ago had firm stances on, on all kinds of social moral issues. And, and the very wealthy of the world who like to go vacation there said, if, if you don't conform 
and lift those literally legislative decisions, if you don't lift those decisions and conform to what we say is right, then we're not going to come spend our money in your country. And in literally a relatively two-year period of time, they've reversed, not just just loosened, they've reversed and went the opposite way in every single one of those issues. The system around us is trying to squeeze us into the passion of their immorality. It happens all the time. You feel it in all kinds of ways if you're paying attention. This is what's going on. And yet, John says, don't be discouraged. (laughs) It's fallen. This system is broken. And in fact, you and I see the fruit of its brokenness, don't we? We see the fruit in people's lives. I'm completely blown away at people that I talk to on a weekly basis who believe in the system around them but are also feeling the absolute degradation and, and chaos that it has caused in their lives and they're starting to go, hmm, this isn't working, right? And so as Christians, we're not called to be freaking out at this stuff. We're called to be there in that moment that we might share the truth of the gospel with them. Let me, let me make sense of this chaos for you, right? That's what we're supposed to do. We bring the gospel, the good news, and say, here, this is not a surprise that you feel this way. It's not shocking at all. Let me share the good news with you. And then lastly, the third angel says, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Listen to these words. I don't think we think about this enough as Christians. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This actually brings up an issue right there. I think sometimes we think of eternal judgment, hell, as a place separated from God. But do you notice who's there? It says that they will be punished and tormented forever in the presence of the Lamb. They too will see his glory. Isn't that crazy? I don't know about you, but that was like an earth-shattering little moment to think about that. They will actually see the goodness of God and not be able to taste it. They will be punished forever in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and notice they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name, whoever follows this world system and goes wholeheartedly into it at the rejection of God, this is ultimately the eternal fate. It's a tormenting, and a punishment forever. Why is that the case? Why is it forever? Why is the judgment of God one day? I don't know about you, but in our modern, western, postmodern sensitivities, this doesn't seem very good. It, it, it's, it's hard for us to even stomach, right? And the reason why that is, I think partly, is because we don't see God for who he really is. We have an understanding of justice that's according to my line that I draw. My understanding of justice. We don't 
We don't understand justice from a perfect, holy, righteous God who has given us everything and yet been spit upon and made a mockery of, right? We don't. We don't think about justice from that standpoint. We simply define it from our own point of view, from our own understanding, and we all have a sense of justice that's, that's not even bad. <laughs> but it's, but it's, it's not the whole picture. God is the one who rightly can judge. He's the one who rightly sees. And the reason why it is eternal and forever and never goes away is because there's no Jesus there. You see, we've committed sin as human beings against an infinite and eternal God. And that infinite and eternal God has graciously offered you Jesus, right? He has sent his eternal and infinite Son who is the only one, because he's an eternal, infinite, perfect lamb of God, he's the only one who can stand in our place and, in essence, what we're going to see later, drink the cup of God's wrath on your behalf and my behalf, and when we reject the very offer, the very thing that can remove the guilt of our sin and the offense of our sin, when we reject that, there is nothing else left. And so the picture here that seems so dreadful is, is dreadful because there's no Jesus. There's no sacrifice. And just as Jesus is the only one because he is eternal, because he is perfect, who is able to take away our sins, when you take Jesus out of the picture, the punishment for your sins against an eternal God, an infinite God, a holy God, has to also fit the crime, right? The punishment has to match it up. If you have offended he who is of the highest order, then the punishment is also that. There is no way to satisfy God's wrath, and that's why it is forever and ever and ever and ever and never goes away. And this is why Jesus is so, so good, right? This is why the gospel is considered good news our God has, has sent his son to you rebellious, hell-bound haters of God, right? Isn't that who we are outside of Jesus? And God has looked upon us as hell-bound haters of God, and he has sent his only son to drink the cup of God's wrath on your behalf. That, it, that your sins would be removed, that the offense would be taken away, that you would not be judged according to your sins. You would not get what you deserve. You would be given mercy. I think, I think there's, in all three of these warnings of judgment, I think what God is intending John to communicate to his church, by the way, if you go back to the beginning of this and you see the seven churches, what were they struggling with? They were struggling to to compromise, to start to look like the world around them. They were struggling to stand firm in the midst of persecution. They were, they were struggling because there was physical persecution and there was, all, there was persecution of their, their workplace and their job and their community of just being accepted, right? There was all kinds of tensions and pressures and there's, they were tempted to give in, to not stand firm. And, and God is... is through John is wanting them to see and wanting us to see that, that God has provided for us 
salvation. He's provided it for the world that God will rightly judge the world one day that we need not fear whether justice will happen. It will happen one day, ultimately, perfectly. And he's intending for us to have a healthy sense of fear of God that our lives would be rightly oriented so that we wouldn't waste them. Have you thought about that, that text right there, verses 9 through 11, in light of the people that you know? in light of your family, your children, in light of your own life? Do you take it serious that there's a day coming in which God will come? You will stand before him, every person, every one of us. I know preachers over the years have been accused of trying to get people to to fearfully trust in Jesus. I am not doing that today. But man, you ought to be afraid if you don't trust in Jesus. You ought to be afraid. And if you're not afraid, then you're to be pitied of all people. Because this day is coming. And this is why Paul would say things in the New Testament to plead with them, today is the day of salvation. Don't delay. Don't take more time to think about it. Today, consider today. Do you know Jesus? Have you trusted in in him completely to remove your sins, to take them away that on that day that this text is talking about, not only would you and I be able to stand before God without any shame or guilt or any, any fear whatsoever, but that our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers would also be able to know this Jesus, to follow him, to be pure, to be those who've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Verse 12 says, here is a call for endurance, for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God. Notice the description here. The saints are Christians, and who are they? They're those who keep the commandments of God. It's those who obey, right? Joyfully. Joyfully obey God and keep their faith in Jesus Christ. Those who trust in Jesus and do what he says, right? That's it. He says, that's it. He says here's a call for endurance. Persevere. Persevere. Press on. Do not lose heart. God will right every wrong. All the injustice that you felt against you, God's going to make it right one day. Trust him. He will keep his promise both to you as a Christian and to the wicked as well. And then he says in verse 13, write this, he says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. That's a beautiful statement. What that says is that death, because of Jesus, death is not your enemy. They can take your life. I've read just the last few weeks of Christians whose lives have been taken. And John's word, God's word to that Christian, blessed are you who die in the Lord. Because God has secured for you eternal life. Do not fear. None of us are running around wanting to be killed, by the way. That's not what that's saying. It's not going, woo, let's die, you know. Nobody's saying that. That's weird, right? I met some people who live in very, very dangerous places of the earth and who share the gospel, who know that they're going to die at one point. And I, th- I met them, and I asked them, we were talking about something about this, and I was thinking, man, these, these are people with such courage. You know what I found out? They're just as scared as you are. They're not running around thinking, yeah, we're going to die. 
No, they're scared to death, but they love Jesus. And they're confident in Christ. And they're confident that the people that they live around need to know Jesus, lest they face the wrath of the Lamb. And so blessed are those who die in the Lord. And then he says, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, and this is beautiful, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds have followed them. Notice the contrast from no rest, up in verse 11, for those who worship the beast, those who live their lives apart from God, no rest, ever. And look at the contrast. For those who have been redeemed by Christ, look at the rest. They will rest from their labors. There is a day coming where all the labor and hard work and difficulties and all the persecution and suffering and problems and chaos will come to cease, be ceased, and you will rest in Christ. You will rest. And what is truly rest? We don't even know what that would, we, we can't even comprehend that. True rest. No more problems. No more sadness. We're going to see this again unfold in the rest of this book. No more tears. No more problems. No more sorrow, No more evil people. No more squeezing in of your life. No more pressures. No more conflicts and relationships. No more money crisis. No more politics. Amen. No more of that stuff, right? A day of true rest. A day where you can actually have family gatherings. No, it won't be like that, but... <laughs> And not have to have an expert on, on ABC get on there and tell you how to, how to get along. It's crazy. True rest. I'm completely out of time. This, this chapter ends with this idea of the reaping that will happen on the earth. And, and we'll just sum it up. That there's a reaping coming. That, that's really in essence what, what Revelation is talking about. There's a day coming when, when things will be fully ready and God will then put, you know, declare and direct the angels to put their sickle in and reap. And the reaping is, is twofold, I think. And we could, we could get into all the details, but, but there's a reaping of Christians. There's the fruit of the gospel that's happening even now where, where Christians... Uh, uh, Believers are being redeemed from every tribe and every tongue and every nation of the world and they're being gathered into the people of God. That is going on. And there's a day that the scripture tells us in chapter 11 of Romans even that they will be complete, that the full number will be in and then, and then the end comes. Matthew 24 as well, or 23, where it talks about this. So we, so we know that there's a day coming where that's gonna be final, it's gonna be complete, where the, the harvest is ripe and Jesus even says right now the harvest is ripe, Right? The fields are wide unto harvest. Let us be sharing the gospel that people would come to faith and God would gather in his people. But here, there's a reaping that's going to come for the wicked in these last verses. A reaping in which the, the, their sins will be full. Their, their, their lives will be filled up. In fact, I think of what Romans says. It says, because, in Romans 2.5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. That is, the more and more you are stubborn and unrepentant and unwilling to turn to God, you're just simply storing up wrath that's going to actually justify God one day when he rightly judges you for rejecting his goodness, Right? You're just going to uphold his justice and his glory is going to be seen all the more in, in a way that seems, should seem frightening, right? 
But that's, that's what he's saying. There's a day coming in which the sickle, I was thinking about this, we had on the farm a sigh. Some of you in the room who know what that is, right? You know, the, this is literally a picture of the, of, the, of the grim reaper right here, right? And, and we see that in shows, right? But this is, this is actually significant. This, this, he's reaping the earth. He is, he is going to come and he's going to harvest the righteous and they're going to stand in judgment and they're going to be completely, utterly wiped out. And so the call for Christians is to stand firm, to endure, to persevere, to press on. God is good. Um, He's got your back. Babylon has fallen. We have not lost. Keep sharing the gospel. Um, And the call to the non-believer is repent. Turn to Jesus today, right now. Is the first part of this text describing your life today? Do you know him in that way? We're gonna take time to take communion today and I think this text actually gives us this beautiful picture for communion because when it talks about the, the, the grapes, the, the cup of God's wrath, you remember what Jesus prayed in the garden? Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. And the Father obviously said to Jesus, there is no other way. You must drink the cup. And what was the cup? It was the wrath of God that was poured out for your sins and mine. And Jesus has drank the cup of your wrath. He's taken it for you. And so today, as we come to the communion table, we're reminded of what Jesus has done for us. That he has bore the wrath for you in your place on the cross. His, his blood, as we drink the cup, it's, his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. The, the bread represents his body that was beaten and bruised. That He physically, literally died on the cross for you in your place and absorbed the wrath of God for you. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, then you're welcome to come to the table. You're welcome to take the bread and remember Christ's body and to drink the cup and remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. If you're not a believer, the Bible says to hold off, to not do this, to make sure that you, that you understand it, that you believe this before you do that. And so that's why there's a warning in Corinthians about that. And so, so I would encourage you not to do this today, but maybe to talk to someone about this before you leave today. Let's pray.